0: ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geraci, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Miami Beach is calling your name to the biggest ETF industry event of the year, Exchange. Exchange is engineered to deliver high value by providing a space to learn, interact, and network with the most influential thought leaders in the industry, built with financial advisors, not just for them. Go to exchangeetf.com to register and enter Prime for 50% off your registration. Again, that's exchangeetf.com and apply the discount code Prime. See you in April.
1: the host of ETF Prime,
2: Nate Geraci. All right, fantastic show this week. Joining me will be Sarah Gelberg, head of U.S. iShares Sustainable ETFs, and Guillermo Cano, executive director of MSCI Global Index Research Solutions. The three of us are going to have a conversation around the impact of the Russian invasion of Ukraine on broader indices, and more specifically on ESG investing. And from an ESG perspective, one of the biggest areas of focus, at least right now, is on how this situation is impacting energy. When you think about how and where countries source their energy needs, right? Their energy supplies and how this could accelerate interest in areas such as clean energy and companies reducing the reliance on fossil fuels. So we are gonna get into all of this And we'll take a look at the top new ETF launch so far this year, the iShares Paris Aligned Climate MSCI USA ETF, ticker P-A-B-U, PABU. Now, also joining me this week will be Dean Smith, Chief Strategist at Folio Beyond and Portfolio Manager for the Folio Beyond Rising Rates ETF, ticker symbol R-I-S-R, RISER, very nice ticker. This ETF just launched last fall. And if you look at its performance, it's been on fire to start the year, up over 20%, which makes sense given that we do have rising rates and inflation at 40-year highs. But if you look under the hood at what this ETF actually holds, it's primarily allocated to something called interest-only mortgage-backed securities which probably aren't the most familiar corner of the fixed income market to a lot of investors. So I'm going to have Dean explain exactly what these are and why they do tend to respond favorably to rising rates. And then we'll also discuss how Dean's viewing everything in the bond markets right now and what investors should be thinking about in their fixed income portfolios. Obviously a very challenging area. And then to start this week, I've got to tell you, very excited I have the one and only Todd Rosenbluth on the line with me, longtime friend of the podcast. He's now head of research at ETF Trends and ETF Database. We're going to talk more about this challenge of fixed income and how investors are attempting to deal with rising rates and inflation. Todd has a new advisor survey for us to dig into, so I think you'll really enjoy this. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database the
1: world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. $800 billion, I think we have to say that again, $800 billion and counting for an industry that is, is still growing in size is impressive.
2: Todd, thanks for joining me this week.
1: Uh, excited to be with you, Nate. I'm, I got my own walk-up intro, and not only music, but but a, a sound bite. Now I know I've arrived on ETF Prime.
2: <laughs> well, how's everything uh, going so far at ETF Trends and ETF Database? And congratulations, by the way. I don't think I've had an opportunity to tell you in person.
1: Well, well, thank you for that. Yeah. So now I'm the head of ETF Trends, head of research at ETF Trends and ETF Database. Less than two weeks on the job, but having a really great time. I, I think the audience probably knows, I knew Tom Lydon and Tom Hendrickson for years. I've respected what they built to support advisor education about ETFs. I was also a source of Lara in a former life for both of us, and I've contributed content to ETF trends for the last few years. But now it's a little bit different and in a great way. I'm doing educational content. I did a Twitter Spaces yesterday. I'm doing my first uh, webcast recording today, not recording live event with Dimensional Funds. And I'm getting a chance to dive a lot deeper into the great data that we have. I know we're going to talk about one other area, but I, I just to give you an example of something I wouldn't have done in necessarily in my former life, uh, we saw at ETF uh, database that for aerospace and defense ETFs were climbing uh, the charts in terms of viewership, that our audience was looking to learn more about them. And so I wrote a piece that published yesterday looking at that trend, looking at the four different ETFs and what makes them different. That's just a level of granularity of detail that I wouldn't have had beforehand about what advisors were interested in, and which makes me excited to be part of this team.
2: Yeah, I'm very excited about the move, Todd. I told uh, Tom Lighton last week, I think uh, they are building an absolute ETF dream team over there, and and now obviously you're a part of that. So so again, congratulations. Um, Okay, so as you were alluding to, Uh, I know that you love data that's out there, and and certainly you love survey data every bit as much as I do. I said last week, uh, look, ETF Prime is definitely not a survey-free podcast, right? We share surveys freely, for better or worse. But I I just love getting a window into what investors and advisors are thinking. It fascinates me from an investor behavior standpoint. Um, I do think it can be constructive to see what other investors are doing within their portfolios. And so you wrote last week about a recent ETF Trends survey, which as it turns out, Tom and I uh, actually covered some of those results from that last week. But you dug into one specific area here, which had to do with where advisors are seeking income given inflation concerns. Clearly a hot topic, uh, as I mentioned at the top. So what I thought we would do, why don't you start by going through the results of that survey question, and then uh, perhaps we can dive a bit deeper into several uh, areas pertaining to that
1: yeah that'd be great so we on a uh, during a, a survey we asked the question just to repeat it again where are you seeking income amid inflationary concerns because inflation was top of mind in the beginning of march and continues to be uh for advisors and they had five different choices i'll tell you what the results are in a second but 58 percent had the top choice we don't get 58 percent agreement on anything really in this country certainly with advisors it, so it's it's really stood out to me when I looked through the various survey data that we had. Fifty eight percent of the respondents chose using dividend strategies as a way of getting income uh, significantly higher than the choice of alternatives, higher than real estate, higher than high yield and higher than the option premiums. And there's, as you know, a number of these different products, ETFs that are out there for the option premium and, and adding call options on top of, of strategies um, Jepi from J.P. Morgan, Newsy and USI from Nationwide are some of the examples. But 58% shows dividend strategies. And we're starting to see that bear fruit as well in terms of where the money is going. They're going into dividend income ETFs uh, in, in recent weeks as well. So it's always great to see our audience getting a little bit ahead of, of what the what the flows are going to be.
2: You know, it's interesting. One of the questions that Tom and I covered last week was, Uh, what is the biggest concern for advisors right now, just just broadly speaking? And the number one response was rising rates and inflation, nearly 40% of respondents. The other big concern was uh, geopolitical risk, about 38%, which, uh, no surprise, given everything going on right now. But if rising rates and inflation are the biggest concern out there, then obviously the natural next question, which is the one that you were uh, looking into, is, well, how do you solve that concern? um but but as you look at those results i mean 58% dividend paying stocks are you surprised dividend paying stocks were the number one answer here uh, really by far
1: yeah so i was i it's reasonable that it would have been a top choice but i thought it would have been much closer i thought there would have been uh you know real estate and real estate investment trusts which will carve out as a separate part of the dividend paying area or at least I will and I think the way the audience was thinking it I thought that might have been higher for the defensive quality characteristics alternatives which is a very broad bucket um, could have been and and was the second most popular but a very distant Part of it, and given that we've seen these option premium strategies gaining traction uh, with advisors uh, in terms of the flows in the past year, I would have thought that that would have been more popular. So, no surprise what the top choice was, but the the gap between them. Uh, but dividend strategies have been around for a long time there's a range of these different products uh which maybe we can get into not only examples of it but but the range that's there but i think it's important you know to highlight since we've got not only advisors on this podcast but and and investors dividend paying stocks and thus an etf that holds dividend paying stocks are riskier than owning corporate bonds of those same issuers there's going to be more downside but there's also going to be more upside and you've got to make sure you understand the risks, not just the rewards of, of an investment style.
2: I think that's an excellent point. I mean, I certainly get why advisors and investors are looking here, but dividend-paying stocks are not bonds. These are different animals. And I think looking into the risk-return profile of any dividend-paying strategy is extremely important. And, you know, this is, a Todd, a little bit of new territory, I think, for a lot of advisors and investors. When you think about the fact that, many investors weren't putting money to work back when uh, inflation was last clipping along at the levels that we're at and and haven't really been in a rising rate environment. And we've had a few blips here over the past couple of decades of of rising rates. But in general, I do think this is a new experience for many people dealing with uh, inflation and rising rates. Um, Okay, so you you mentioned products. I know in your piece you covered several dividend ETFs that investors might look into. Do do you want to highlight a few of those?
1: Sure. So first of all, the last time inflation was at this level, I was five years old and in kindergarten. I, I don't want to make you put your age out there, but so this is new territory for everybody. Let's be, or for almost everybody that that's listening to this podcast. So let's be honest about it. So I highlighted four ETFs. I'm going to just cherry pick a couple of examples. The two most popular and largest of the dividend oriented ETFs are from Vanguard, that's probably not a surprise, Vanguard Dividend Appreciation ETF, VIG, and Vanguard High Dividend Yield ETF, which is VYM. VIG is more growth-oriented, holds companies like Microsoft, for example, more technology-focused. VYM is focuses on the yield, it's a bit more defensive in nature those are the two largest of those respective uh etfs but what was interesting to me the fourth largest of the products is from ishares it's ishares select dividend etf and it's the one that's performing the best uh it actually was up six percent year to date uh through friday Uh, i didn't look at data as of yesterday um it's got hefty stakes in utilities and in energy those are two of the stronger parts of the marketplace it's outperforming VIG by over a thousand basis points when I last looked at it. So it's very important to not just choose dividends as your category, but as I've said many a time on your podcast and elsewhere, you've got to look under the hood. You've got to make sure you understand what you're getting. And if you want a income generating strategy that will have exposure to the more defensive or even the more cyclical areas of the market, but understanding energy is cyclically different than than technology, for example, uh, it's important to make sure you've got uh, a close look at that.
2: Todd, outside of some of the dividend-focused ETFs, what about some of the more what I would call uh, direct plays on the inflation theme, which is obviously tied to rising rates. So one of the biggest launches last year, I'm sure you recall, is the Horizon Kinetics Inflation Beneficiaries ETF, ticker INFL. Uh, Another ETF is the Axis Astoria Inflation Sensitive ETF, ticker PPI, with uh, John Davi as the portfolio manager. That just launched at the end of December. There was another recent launch from Amplify the inflation fighter ETF ticker IWIN, and, and there are several others, and more on the way, right? I, I just saw last week there was a filing for this uh, Kings Barn Tactical Inflation ETF ticker TNFL, uh, w- w- which sort of reminds me of Thursday Night Football or something. But um, <laughs> a- a- any thoughts on those types of ETFs? Again, I, I know not dividend-focused ETFs, which is where the uh, you know the thrust of your piece was, but I do think this may be an area some advisors are looking at.
1: Certainly, and, and you're right. INFL was the, one of the more popular ETFs to launch last year. It, it timed, it, it got its timing right. It, it's more than just uh, a flash in the pan, in our opinion. But these ETFs together are a way of winning, potentially winning and benefiting from the inflationary times, not just combating it using TIPS. You know, we saw uh, TIPS products like TIP uh, and VTIP uh, being very popular in 2021. They've moved out of favor. In 2022, INFL owns only stocks that are tied to sectors and industries that can benefit from a rising interest rate environment. It it, it continues to to gather assets. PPI uh, is a bit more multi-asset class in nature, so it owns stocks of dip from different some different sectors, but also adds in. It has a bit of exposure to tips. It has exposure to commodities, so you get more of an asset allocation strategy that can fit well within a sixty forty portfolio you mentioned amplify you mentioned some others fidelity has an inflation uh equity related product this is a growing category i think it's really exciting that the asset management industry is is providing tools for advisors that want to win against inflation not just play defense
2: i i was looking at performance this morning and i don't, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush here because there are a lot of products in, in this category but infl is up about 7.3 percent year-to-date PPI is up 15.6%. Obviously, you compare that to the S&P, which is down, uh, I believe, about 3.7% year-to-date. So you can see how some of these strategies uh, are performing. By the way, as I was looking at some of the inflation-related ETFs, I came across the IQ Real Return ETF, which probably has the best ticker symbol of all of these, which is CPI. And this thing launched in 2009 it actually has less than $30 million in it. And this holds a mix of assets that are expected to benefit from an inflationary environment, things that you were just hitting on tips. And uh, uh, there's there's equities, commodities. Are, are you surprised that that hasn't gained more traction? I guess maybe it was before its time.
1: Yeah, I... I don't know off the top of my head enough about what's inside this portfolio, but it is different, certainly, than what we're talking about. It's a bit more of an alternatives-related strategy that has a great ticker tied to inflation. Um, I'd have to imagine that the, <laughs> the folks that have launched in more recent years would have loved that CPI being available. PPI is perhaps the, the next uh best one to think of from an inflation standpoint and the data. But it just goes to show you that it's it's more than just, a, you know, we, we love tickers. I love tickers. We love them at ETF Trends and Database. I know you do, but it's more than a ticker. Uh, investors are, are doing their homework and, and getting to know these ETFs uh, beyond just a, a cool ticker.
2: You mentioned uh, perhaps this being more of an alternative uh, approach. What about something like the ETF I'll be spotlighting later, the Folio Rising Rates uh, ETF, ticker RISR, R-I-S-R, uh, that I, I would think without question, this fits more into the alternatives bucket. It's not traditional fixed income. Um, but, you know, as you look at the landscape, there are other ETFs out there that look to directly play rising rates. I know Simplify has a uh, an interest rate hedge ETF, ticker P-F-I-X. Any thoughts on those types of products? Yeah, so
1: this one I think feels a bit different to me in that it's trying to, again, benefit from a rising rate environment by owning parts of the mortgage-backed uh, securities la- within that landscape that can benefit uh, from the rising rate environment. A lot of the products, I mean, you mentioned Simplify, but I even think of these rate hedge products that that iShares and others uh, I think ProShares has a has a suite of products. They're more trying to just remove the the risk of rising interest rates and just give you the income. This is a product. Uh, our, I'm sorry, the rising rate product you're talking to uh, about, talking with the manager later is an effort to try to benefit uh, from that trend, and it's also actively managed, uh, which is uh, probably important because the the mortgage market is certainly harder for. Uh, investors to get their arms around and so you get the benefits of of a professional manager sorting through that universe and rolling through based on the interest rate environment. so I'm interested to hear that that interview. I'll listen to it tomorrow morning when I when I walk my dog uh, that's when I tend to listen to ETF Prime but I, I'm a, I think you've got a great guest coming up.
2: By the way, I I was mentioning the performance of the uh, inflation-themed ETFs. I I checked out the performance of PFIX, that Simplify Interest Rate Hedge ETF. That thing's up 36% year-to-date, which I think would surprise some people. I'll give you one other—
1: Yeah, I'll go with wow. (laughs) I'll go with wow on that one (laughs) thing. When
2: I looked at that, I was surprised. Um, And I'll give you one other fun fact, which I know you'll appreciate. I mentioned CPI— Earlier. So as I were as I was looking at the different rising rate ETFs that are uh, out there, you probably recall there was an ETF called the SIT rising rate ETF, which had a, a beautiful ticker, Rise, R-I-S-E. Yeah. That thing actually closed in October of 2020, and it just reminded me, you know, of the, the, the different ETFs that we see that kind of hang in there and wait for their moment in the sun. Uh, this one just couldn't hang in there quite long enough because I feel like with that ticker and and what it does, if it had just been able to, to stay live, which I know is uh, you know, always easier said than done in, in some cases. But I think of an ETF like Freedom it, that we're seeing now, and, and there's been others, right? JETS in in uh, March of 2020. This one seems like it was situated perfectly to, to benefit from uh, the environment we're in now. Um, Todd, just a few minutes left. I, I do want to ask you a completely unrelated topic. So I'm going to visit here in just a moment with uh, iShares and MSCI on ESG ETFs and investing. And I I thought maybe you could help set the stage for us at least a little bit. Do you have any quick thoughts on uh, ESG this year, whether we're talking flows, uh, performance, anything else? I I mean, I've seen the case being made that perhaps everything going on in Russia and Ukraine, that could help drive uh, some additional interest here. I mean, do you have any quick thoughts on this space?
1: Well, we haven't seen that using our data. Uh, Again, I'll I'll, I'll pull on what we've seen at at ETF database. We've actually seen a decline in the ticker searches for the five most popular broad ESG ETFs, about a 40% decline year over year. Bec- and we think it's in part because people are seeking out more commodity and inflation-related products that we were talking about. And, and even though there is exposure to energy companies within ESGU and and the various products uh, that that iShares at that and that MSCI ha- runs the index behind, people are looking for something more targeted to get exposure to it. So. I, I actually hope that people would be focusing more on the governance aspect and perhaps from the emerging markets, the governance aspect. And FRDM, which you talked about earlier, has been very popular. That's a different kind of ESG, uh, emerging markets ETF. But I'm surprised that people are not staying with the the searches um, for these tickers. They're, they're looking elsewhere. And that's that's a, a bit surprising given that these are well-intended to be broad market uh Stay within your portfolio uh, in good and bad time kind of products. So, again, interesting. And I guess I, I'd also just note the regulators are now getting more interested in ESG. We've got the SEC uh, talking about requiring more transparency uh, for companies, which would hopefully make the data a bit more aligned. Uh, but I think there's a, it's a hot topic, and I know you've got strong views on ESG. It's always interesting when you when you talk to ESG experts who can can uh, perhaps Shift your opinion a little bit.
2: Yeah, no, no question. And again, I just think that uh, I, I do feel like ESG is under the spotlight more with the situation in Russia-Ukraine, and then just what with, with what you were hitting on that clearly the SEC is spending a lot more time focused on this area. We saw the news last week that, uh, you know, climate change disclosures for public companies and and those sorts of things. So no, I I just think it's going to be a fascinating area to watch uh, for the remainder of the year and certainly looking forward to talking to uh, iShares and MSCI on this. But Todd, we'll have to leave it there. Fantastic stuff this week. I I love having you in this new role. Look forward to you regularly uh, appearing on the podcast. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thanks a lot, Nate, and thanks for the good wishes.
2: That was Todd Rosenbluth, Head of Research at ETF Trends and ETF Database.
0: This podcast is supported by iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest. iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainably related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of the progress at iShares.com slash sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risk, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC.
2: My next guests are Sarah Gelberg, head of U.S. iShares Sustainable ETFs, and Guillermo Cano, executive director of MSCI Global Index Research Solutions. Of course, iShares is the largest ETF issuer in the world. Here in the U.S., they currently offer over 390 ETFs, nearly $2.4 trillion in assets, including the top ETF uh, launch so far this year, the iShares Paris Aligned Climate MSCI USA ETF, ticker P-A-B-U. Now, MSCI is a premier provider of indexes and portfolio construction, along with risk management tools and research. And I'm very pleased to have both Sarah and Guillermo now on the line with me. Sarah, Guillermo, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Nate. Thank Thank you. you. Okay, so I want to start with the broader investment impact of the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine. Uh, This has obviously made a lot of headlines over the past month, clearly front of mind for investors right now. And Guillermo, let me start with you and how MSCI has handled all of this. And perhaps you can address this on two fronts. So, number one, I'd love to hear how MSCI has approached this from a uh, broader indexing perspective how you've handled Russian securities within indices, and then number two, I'd love to hear specifically about the ESG side of the equation, just in terms of the impact on ESG ratings, whether we're talking about country or company ratings or both. So, uh, do you want to offer a brief update here?
3: Yeah, no, thanks. Appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, I'm glad you made that. You made that distinction because it's it's been a lot of different uh, moving parts for us on uh, on this uh, Russia Ukraine war. So with regards to the Russian equity market and what we do with with our indexes, uh, you know, on February 28th, we we launched a consultation and we talked to a lot of international institutional investors and we talked to them about the market. We talked to asset owners, asset managers, broker dealers, a, a bunch of folks. And, and, what, and what they were telling us is that the Russian market really was, uh, was uninvestable. It was, it was really not accessible, right? So, you know, given, given that and given the requirements that we have in our uh, market classification framework, it was determined that, that this market uh, would be reclassified and that it would go from emerging markets to a standalone market status as of the close of March 9th. Right. So that, w- that, that affected the, the Russian equity, the index side of it. Now, on the ESG part of it, we have ratings that cover both uh, Russia as kind of a sovereign entity. And, and that basically migrated from a triple B to a single B on February 28th. And then on March 8th, uh, it was further migrated from a, a B to a triple C. And this and this really reflected the you know kind of the growing um, financial isolation uh, of Russia. You know, it, it it basically it you know there was a lot of of, uh, of impaired access to capital markets. Um, you know, obviously macroeconomic instability. You know, the isolation and and given this impairment. Uh, it moved down to uh, to that lowest rating. So, uh, you know, it, it happened, you know, we've been covering this on a variety of different fronts.
2: Sarah, I mentioned in my uh, previous segment, I'm seeing the case being made that perhaps everything going on with Russia and Ukraine, that could spark additional interest in ESG strategies, especially one centered around the energy transition and alternative sources of energy. And we can certainly talk about that specifically But even at a broader level, how do you think the Russia-Ukraine war impacts the energy transition overall? Because clearly a lot more is being made about how and where countries source their energy needs, their energy supplies. So how do you expect the situation to continue uh, sort of accelerating that conversation in terms of this uh, energy transition?
4: Sure, Nate. And what I'd say is what is clear is that the transition is already underway. Uh, But what is not clear is the speed and the shape of the transition, and we will see spikes in demand for energy, just as we have seen unfold recently with both the economic restart and, of course, most recently with Russia's invasion and subsequent sanctions. So our CEO, Larry Fink, released his annual shareholder letter this week, and in it, he really stressed BlackRock's commitment to stand with Ukraine. Uh, He also addresses this question, and and I'll just note a few of the key points. Um, The first is, is that, you know, the energy security has really joined the energy transition as a top priority, and it can only work if it's going to be fair and just. And also the supply gap will certainly slow some of the progress. You know, we've seen the U.S. already increasing oil and gas supply. Europe and Asia may also increase their coal consumption. So, you know, back to your question, Nate, on how these market drivers will impact the move towards net zero. Uh, You know, longer term, we believe this will accelerate the shift towards greener sources of energy. And, you know, when we see higher energy prices, it really starts to bring down the green premium. And energy security concerns are also driving, you know, more demand for renewable energy with countries increasing capital spending for more green tech and infrastructure. You know, for example, we've already seen Germany, you know, spell out their plans to accelerate its use of renewable energy and reach 100% clean power by 2035, uh, which is about 15 years ahead of their target. So, you know, given really the profound impact of climate change on risks and opportunities over the long term and and the uncertainty in which it will unfold, BlackRock is really focused on helping our clients navigate this transition, really depending on their own objectives. And we are committed to providing the leading tools and data and analytics, um, as well as a spectrum of, of new solutions for investors.
2: Yeah, it's so interesting how quickly the spotlight turned to to energy. And you, you mentioned renewable uh, energy in particular in this argument that higher energy prices we're seeing now are, are bringing down the so-called green premium and that this could drive more demand uh, for, for renewables. But um, Guillermo, I'm curious, uh, anything you would add from MSCI's perspective here? Yeah, ju- just just a couple of
3: things. I, I think Sarah really captured it well. Um what I would add too, though, is that we you know we 're coming from the hopefully the the tail end of this pandemic and and you, you know you have to remember that during the pandemic, a lot of the electricity producers right had reduced their output from from you know from different power sources you know thermal power other other sources, and then we we kind of ramp up into a a period of Increasing energy prices, right, and then we ramp up into the Russia-Ukraine war, and so all of a sudden we have this we have this risk uh, inherent in the supply chain and the sensitivity to the oil market, and the prices are fluctuating. And so, as, as you know, as Sarah mentioned, um, this may temporarily, you know, increase some emissions. It may. You know, it, it may uh, slow down some of this transition, but the transition is happening nonetheless. I think, especially given this volatility uh, to, to, to these oil prices, to these gas prices, I think it's going to speed up uh, in the long term. It, it really may speed up the deployment of some of these greener uh, technologies and greener energy.
2: So, as you both go through that, I'm curious from a portfolio perspective how you view the, the impact of all this. And, and Sarah, I'll start with you. I mean, how do you think investors should approach all of this from a portfolio perspective? What, what do you think should be some key considerations here?
4: Sure. Well, there are a few ways to think about this within a portfolio. So the first is to take a more holistic approach. And the second way is to really target specific themes. Um, and, there's, and also within holistically applying it within a portfolio, there's really kind of two ways. So the first is reduce very kind of simple way to approach this, which is just to reduce exposure to the highest carbon emitters or companies that, you know, aren't taking any actions against climate. Um, so the, the types of exposures typically are your screened exposure. So these are the broad-based that, you know, screen out, for example, fossil fuel companies. Um, and the second is to, you know, what we call prioritize. So this is intentionally really allocating capital based on companies' actions to transition. Uh, these are companies that are reducing their reliance on fossil fuels. These are also companies that are publishing transition plans and setting science-based targets. And I would say that this is an area that we're starting to see more innovation and solutions. Um, we recently launched the iShares US Paris aligned MSCI ETF, the ticker is PABU. Uh, you know, this was driven in part by demand that we were seeing from asset owners, particularly in Europe. Um, And eventually what we believe from other investors who, um, you know, have put out net zero targets and want to integrate climate transition to their portfolios. Um, MSCI's methodology is based on the Paris alignment criteria, which was developed by the EU. And what I think is unique about this ETF is that it meets a number of objectives within a broad U.S. equity exposure. It reduces transition and physical risk, helps to manage climate change opportunities, has a 50% reduction in greenhouse gas intensity with the built-in decarbonization of 10% uh, in order to target net zero by 2050. Uh, and then you know, the other approach is to focus on a particular theme. So we call this target. Uh, and this is a way to invest in, you know, again, a theme that or a, you know, a particular economic activity, such as clean energy or investments that are directly tied to projects. Um, you know, that are advancing environmental purposes. So the iShares Bloomberg Barclays MSA Green Bond ETF, ticker BGRN, really provides diversified exposure to U.S. dollar denominated investment grade green bonds, where the use of proceeds are directly funded or funding environmental projects. So investors can really consider this fund in place of or as a complement to their broad investment grade bond allocation within their portfolios.
2: Uh, Guillermo, so uh, Sarah goes through that and, and highlights these two areas: holistically addressing a portfolio's exposure or becoming more targeted in, in terms of that exposure. A- anything you would add here in terms of considerations for investors?
3: Yeah, yeah, and, and, and the one thing I would I would um, add to that though is is in terms of kind of the the frameworks you laid out about reducing and prioritizing, uh, and then you know finally targeting is 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 the the reduction. Um, is interesting because we obviously want to, you know, be on the lookout for for those uh, the companies that are subject to these low carbon transitions, especially the those that have acid stranding risks. But the interesting thing is that if you look in the spectrum of of those that have the highest emissions, those you may want to to look at. You also have utilities, and those companies offer some kind of alternative energy solutions. So. So that's kind of a a good framework to to look at it, right? We have to look at those companies and be, uh, again, using the criteria from the uh, the EU to select those companies that are doing, you know, maybe in some criteria, uh, you know, maybe not the the shiniest and best and and brightest looking, but on the other hand, uh, do make do have some targets, right? So they're publishing targets. They're publishing targets that are realistic, or they've actually had reduction. In their greenhouse gas emissions over the last couple of years and then and then finally in terms of, of uh, targeting you know this is where we they're targeting specifically in the EU Paris line methodology green revenue and for that green revenue we look at uh, categories like obviously I just mentioned alternative energy uh, energy efficiency but then we also look at things like uh, sustainable water green building pollution prevention and uh, sustainable agriculture. So so I think, uh, you know, those are all elements which uh, which I think lined up nicely with, uh, you know, with what we're talking about in terms of this transi- transition to a lower carbon economy.
2: Well, and again, certainly with everything going on, this is going to be an area we're going to see a lot more conversation around, certainly a lot more uh, interest. Uh, but Sarah Guillermo, we're going to have to leave it there. Really appreciate the perspective this week. Thank you for joining me.
4: Thanks, Nate.
3: Thanks, Thanks, Nate.
2: That was Sarah Gelberg, head of U.S. iShare Sustainable ETFs, and Guillermo Cano, executive director of MSCI Global Index Research Solutions.
0: Miami Beach is calling your name to the biggest ETF industry event of the year, Exchange. Exchange is engineered to deliver high value by providing a space to learn, interact, and network with the most influential thought leaders in the industry, built with financial advisors, not just for them. Go to ExchangeETF.com to register and enter Prime for 50% off your registration. Again, that's ExchangeETF.com and apply the discount code Prime. See you in April.
2: Starts with My last guest this week, know. certainly not least, is Dean Smith, chief strategist at Folio Beyond and portfolio manager for the Folio Beyond Rising Rates ETF, ticker symbol RISR, RISER, which I've got to tell you is having a bit of a moment right now. Uh, launched in the fall of last year, it's now starting to see a nice uptick in investor interest, about $25 million in inflows just this year. It's also up over 22% year-to-date as well. And Dean himself has over 25 years' experience in all aspects of structured products. He's had roles as an investment banker, trader, hedge fund manager, and he's now on the line with me from Charleston, South Carolina. Dean, it's a pleasure. Welcome to the podcast.
5: Happy to be with you.
2: All right, so let's dive right into this ETF, and then we can certainly broaden out and talk fixed-income markets. Uh, So RISER is clearly designed to help protect against rising rates. It does so by holding something called interest-only mortgage-backed securities. I guess first, uh, just explain what these securities are. I'm I'm guessing some investors are not familiar with a segment of the market. And then talk about the ETF itself, which I know is actively managed. Sure,
5: sure. So um, everyone is pretty familiar with uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They buy residential mortgages, <clears throat> excuse me, by residential mortgages in the marketplace and they guarantee them, and they then issue mortgage-backed securities, generally in the form of just straight pass-throughs where the principal and interest just goes out to whoever buys that security. Now, what Wall Street firms do with those pass-through securities is they structure them into different kinds of tranches where they're meeting different investor demands. One of the kinds of tranches uh, Tranching that they do is to create principal-only and interest-only certificates. Okay, so as it uh, sounds, a uh, principal-only gets only the principal payments from those uh, mortgage cash flows, and the IO interest-only securities get only the interest payments from those securities. So basically, you're bifurcating that Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac pass-through security into a principal tranche and an interest tranche.
2: Okay, so in terms of the ETF, it it obviously holds those. And then as I understand it, there's a a smaller allocation to U.S. Treasury bonds. But as I look at this, the overall idea here is to target a negative 10 duration. Is that correct?
5: That's right. So MBS IOs are one of the only securities in the marketplace that have negative duration, that naturally have negative duration. And what that means is that We've all seen the, you know, the line in the Wall Street Journal as interest rates rise, bond prices go down. That's positive duration. Well, IO securities have negative duration. When interest rates rise, they increase in value. And the reason for that is actually pretty simple, though it sounds maybe a little contradictory uh, off the top of your head. As interest rates rise, the borrowers underlying these securities Prepay their mortgages more slowly, right? They don't refinance to take advantage of lower rates. And in fact, they just continue to stay in their mortgages. That means those mortgages and the mortgage backed securities stay outstanding for a longer period of time. That means that the IO buyer receives that interest cash flow for a longer period of time. And therefore, the value of that IO security goes up as interest rates go up and prepayments slow down. So we are structuring the riser fund, to have a negative 10-year duration, which means that for each 1% increase in interest rates, this fund is designed to increase in value by 10%. Now, obviously, there's no guarantees. My compliance people need me to tell you that, of course. Uh, But that's the way that the, the fund is structured and engineered.
2: Dean, how big is this particular market? Uh, market, Like, I know the, the MBS market overall is enormous, uh, it, but you're talking about, you know, stripping this down to principal only and then the interest only component, which is what we're talking about. I mean, what is the underlying liquidity of these securities look like? Is this a deep market? I know we always have some investors out there who are concerned about the uh, quote unquote liquidity <laughs> mismatch between fixed income ETFs and their underlying holdings. Are there any concerns with, with something like that here?
5: The short answer is no. Um, the, obviously, we're only buying fixed rate uh, agency securities, So there's no adjustable rate in here. This is plain vanilla Fannie Mae Freddie Mac securities. And the thing that's interesting about IOs is that there is essentially no cap on the supply. Because if there's demand for POs and therefore IOs, um, the street will just make more. They can go to to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, say, sell me some pass-throughs, and they'll create more POs and IOs. So there's there's essentially no cap, and this is a very, very deep and very liquid market.
2: Okay, so let's talk about the current market environment, and then I, I'm going to circle back to, to Riser itself. And I think overall, most investors obviously know the story here right now, right? We We have inflation clipping along at 8%. The Fed lifted rates off of zero a couple of weeks ago. I I believe there are a total of seven rate hikes expected this year. And I, I guess the way I'll frame a question to you is, Uh, Look, I I know we're in a different environment now, given that we do have uh, substantial inflation, but I'm sure that you recall when the Fed tried to raise rates in 2018, which wasn't very well received by the markets, the Fed quickly reversed course. Do you see any chance of that this time around, or do you think uh, Fed Chairman Powell is, is truly committed here?
5: Well, I don't know if he's committed, but he's certainly painted himself into an impossible corner. Um, You know, they've waited far too long to normalize rates. As you mentioned a few years ago, they kind of panicked at the first market reaction as they started to ever so gently lift rates. And that has led to now a situation where they really don't have much of a choice. Um, I'm reminded of uh, when Margaret Thatcher supposedly said to George Bush just ahead of of the uh, Iraq war, now, George, this is no time to go wobbly. Okay? <laughs> so the Fed can't go wobbly here. They've, they've got to stick to the to stick to the plan. I mean, we've got an accelerating inflationary cycle right here, not just tick- ticking up a little bit. It's accelerating. And that will continue to be the case if they don't stop it. The, the sad reality of inflationary cycles is that they don't die of natural causes. You have to kill them. OK, they don't they don't get better. They don't just cure themselves. And so the Fed is simply going to have to react here. And the, the reason that they've painted themselves into a corner here is that they were operating on a thesis uh, that turned out not to be uh, true. The idea was that if they would just buy assets that would increase their values, maintain broad purchasing power, I, uh, aggregate demand. What it mostly did is exacerbate longer-term trends toward income and wealth inequality in this country. I mean, you can you can see it in the housing market. Housing prices have just climbed out of reach for so many people in this country. Housing affordability has collapsed in the last ten years, and it's it's now got to the point where you know the the cliche is that they're behind the curve. And I actually looked up the definition of where that term behind the curve comes from. And apparently, it comes from a a condition when you're trying to land an airplane. And if you let the power go down too low, the plane will stall. And so you're said to be behind the curve. And at that point, you have to super accelerate. You have to add a whole bunch of power to get ahead of the curve so the plane doesn't crash. That's the situation the Fed finds themselves in right now.
2: Yeah. And I'll just add to that. I mean, I do think the Fed can be an easy target. And I will say, obviously, they had an extremely difficult task navigating the pandemic. And, you know, there are people who, who really applauded the way they stepped up and supported the markets and, and the economy. But I, I think to what you're speaking to, I don't think there's any question their actions helped drive these inflationary pressures we're seeing today. And I'll, I'll be honest, Dean, I mean, the Fed did not seem to recognize these pressures initially. I'm certainly no economic genius, but inflation – did seem pretty obvious to me, even going back to to late 2020 or or earlier last year. So, uh, you know, now to your point, they painted themselves into this corner and they're going to have to figure out a way to get out. Um, Let me ask you this from an an investor standpoint. So in terms of moving forward, um, and let me do this, let me give you some year to date returns from a few popular bond ETFs right now. So the most popular bond ETF, the iShares Core U.S. Aggregate Bond ETF, ticker AGG, that's down nearly seven percent year-to-date. If you move over to the uh, corporate credit side, something like the iShares Investment Grade Corporate Bond ETF, LQD, that's down over ten or over nine percent. Junk bonds, so the iShares High Yield Corporate Bond ETF, HYG, that's down over 5%. If you want to look a longer duration, so something like the iShares 20-plus-year Treasury Bond ETF, TLT, that's down over 12%. And I even looked uh, extremely short duration. So something like the PIMCO Enhanced Short Maturity Active ETF, Mint, even that's down over 1%. The question that I have for you is, uh, obviously, you think Riser, which, again, is up 22% year to date. You think that should play a role in a portfolio. But how should investors uh, sort of think about the other components of a bond portfolio? Because bonds can serve as that ballast, right? They're certainly a hedge if things really go sideways in, in, in the market. So I don't think you can just shun traditional bonds altogether. So how should investors think about the uh, their, their overall bond portfolio construction right now?
5: Right. Great question. So so here's a little bit of uh, just background before I go directly to that question. There's this, there's this myth that somehow there can be some sort of a soft landing here and that rates won't really have to go up that much and maybe we can avoid a recession. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Okay, The way that you break the back of an inflationary cycle is you need to raise the cost of capital. You raise the cost of capital, business investment household investment goes down that reduces aggregate demand over time and then you you break the the cycle of inflation so interest rates are going a lot higher okay i don't know exactly how high they're going to go but i will tell you this if you look historically at the last six times that the federal reserve has embarked a a rate hike cycle it's lasted two years on average but 22 months And the average peak, uh, you know, bottom to top from the time they start to the time they end is over 300 basis points. Okay, we were just barely getting started. They've They've done one raise of 50 basis points. So interest rates are going higher. Bond prices are going lower. There's simply no way out of this. Now, many investors, as you as you note, have to own bonds. Selling them out, you know, selling their bonds outright is not an option. What you can do is three things. You need to reduce your duration overall, okay? And we think our fund is is a part of that. If you've got a, if you own the AGG, it has a duration of around seven. Um, our fund has a duration of negative ten. Some blend of those we think makes sense. You can get that duration down to something that's more comfortable for you. You should also be do- reducing credit exposures. If we're going to have a recession, and again, I'm not calling for you know the end of the world here, but th- there is going to be a slowdown in economic activity, that's going to have impact on, on credit. So I think it makes sense to reduce your credit exposures. The other thing you should do is you should look for investments that are not correlated to the broader markets, either the broad bond market or to the equity markets. And again, we think that our strategy has, has some benefits there. So three things that bond investors can be, can be thinking about right now.
2: Any thoughts on some of the other uh, traditional rate or inflation hedges in a portfolio, things like floating rate notes or uh, tips? A- any thoughts on, on those particular hedges?
5: Yeah, uh, you know, I can I can talk about some of those um, specifically. But, I mean, one of the reasons that we launched this fund is because we saw some flaws in some of these other products. And so just mention floaters, tips inverse products, options, um, they all have some benefits potentially, but they also have some, some flaws. For example, with floaters, um, your coupon will go up as short-term interest rates go up, and the intent there is to sort of keep you at a par coupon, but that's all it's gonna do, okay? It's not gonna increase in value as rates rise. It's just designed to preserve par. Tips, tips have a very mixed record of uh, hedging interest rate risk. Um, They're actually down this year. And uh, the problem with TIPS is that they still have, while they do have inflation protection, they still are long duration. So as rates rise, they will go down in value, okay? Inverse instruments, uh, a lot of these, you know, two times, three times uh, inverse uh, products. The problem with those is that they're negative carry and they are short volatility. These are products that are designed to work on a really short-term basis. Okay, so uh, there's there's absolutely no assurance um, that they're going to perform over longer periods of time the way that uh, sometimes people think they do. Um, and then options, uh, well, there are some there are some products out there that are using options. They work if the market is trending in your direction, but they're also negative carry. You you're, you can just bleed option premium month after month after month. Our fund on the other hand uh is actually positive carry we're earning a current coupon on our ios and we're earning a current coupon on the treasuries right now it's something uh around three percent on a on a current carry basis so those other products we think have a role to play potentially but we don't think that they're the 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 full solution
2: dean just a couple of minutes left here you know i always like to take a full 360 degree view of any etf that that we look at. And in terms of the longer term case to owning Riser, if you look at the yield curve right now, we're already seeing spots where there's some inversion, which I guess would theoretically indicate investors think the Fed will pull back on rate hikes at some point, probably because the Fed throws the economy into a recession. Should that give investors in Riser any pause, right? Investors who are looking to hold this as part of a longer term portfolio allocation and I'll color that by saying when I see an ETF up 22% in 3 months like riser is which is great but that to me also means it can be down 22% in 3 months. So I guess just talk about the potential downside to an ETF like this especially for longer term investors.
5: Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, obviously anything can happen. I I we have a very strong conviction that rates are going higher as I, as I think I've expressed <laughs> here. Uh but we think there's actually a longer term investment case for uh this fund and and uh, other products that maybe uh, are like it there's three sort of use cases here there's there's people who want to speculate there's people who want to hedge and there's people who are looking for diversification obviously if um, rates continue to go up and you just want to take a view on that this works for you there but we think it also uh, has benefits in a long only uh, or or, you know primarily long investment uh, portfolio fixed income portfolio because it can you can manage your duration Uh, you can hedge your exposure to rates to a level that is actually you're comfortable with while still getting the exposures that you that you want to have whether it's the corporates or high yields or mortgage markets whatever it may be and then we think it has really strong diversification benefits it's inversely correlated to the agg it's inversely correlated or excuse me not strongly correlated at all to spy so you know assuming that rates don't go back to zero, assuming that we uh, continue on something like the path that we're on here, even stabilize here, we we still think there's benefits to having some exposure to this product uh, in a fixed income portfolio.
2: Well, Dean, excellent perspective this week. Really uh, appreciate the clarity with which you described the product and and certainly your views on the market. Congratulations on the success of Riser so far. And thank you for joining me this week.
5: Thanks so much for your time. It's a pleasure.
2: That was Dean Smith, Chief Strategist at Folio Beyond. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. By the way, if you're still thinking about attending exchange in Miami Beach, don't forget to use the code PRIME for 50% off your pass at exchangeetf.com. Next week, I'll be joined by State Street's Matt Bartolini. We're gonna cover a number of ETF topics, including the state of actively managed ETFs, and then Mamadou Abu Saar co-founder and CEO of vSquare will spotlight their vShares U.S. leadership diversity ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.